I'd like to reflect a little bit on that with you this evening. Let's uh, read uh, Psalm 133, and uh, I'm going to just make a few comments on it when I get to talk about it. I'm going to read back to back with that uh, Hebrews chapter 10, a couple of uh, well-known verses with, um, I think, some relevance to us uh, in a particular way today. Uh, Psalm 133, very short, isn't it? And uses a couple metaphors which are foreign to us. I'll explain them when we get uh, to them in a few minutes. <clears throat> so a song of ascents, you may notice that in the, in the title. It means people, as they were going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you would literally go up uphill, okay? So you were ascending. Uh, Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. And uh, so wherever you came from, you typically went uphill as you uh, went to worship. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, which is life forever, or life evermore. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Uh, Hebrews 10. And I want to remind you, uh, Hebrews is written to people who are Jewish believers at a time when their homeland is being uh, torn apart by Roman forces, right around the time of the, what's called the Jewish, first Jewish revolt. Okay. So I'm going to pick up Hebrews 10, verse uh, 23. Under these difficult circumstances, the author says, Let's hold fast, or hold tightly, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that'll be the day of Christ, the day drawing near. During the uh, uh, year, I tend to preach what we call exegetical sermons. I'll choose a book and sort of follow, follow most of it through uh, consistently. It gives us a kind of a balanced breadth of what the Word of God is saying in one part or another. But during the summer, I like to take sermon requests, and it could be a passage or a topic or a problem or something, and spend a couple months just devoted to tasks, if you will, or issues that are on the minds of people before returning to uh, an exegetical series the following, the following cycle. And I've had this year uh, in, requ in requests, number of requests, just wanting me to talk a little bit about the value of fellowship. And particularly as people are seeing from, I think, lots of different angles, that the very nature of our society and the way it relates to itself uh, is undergoing some pretty significant changes. Uh, although COVID accelerated and intensified some of these, th these were all things that are happening already, I think. They were not necessarily anything new. Uh, technology is affecting every one of us in ways that we, we can all see it happening. Uh, and sometimes we wonder what it's all about. I, I happen to be one of these people, by the way, who has been quite intrigued by the work of a Canadian theorist of a, actually about almost two generations ago, Marshall McLuhan. 
Uh, that name may not mean anything to you, but if you've ever heard the phrase, the global village, he's the guy who coined that phrase about 60 years ago. And he just talked about how uh, communications were changing in such a way that even people on opposite sides of the globe had an almost immediate connectivity with each other, uh, for better or for worse. But that, that's, that's the kind of thinking that's intrigued me. And it was funny because uh, just a couple weeks ago as I was preparing for some of what I'm doing tonight, uh, I was doing what every good person does when they want information. Uh, you don't go to books anymore. You don't ask friends. You go to Google it, right? Uh, we, we all do it. You know that. Uh, you can confess. You can be honest with me. I, I, your secret is safe with me and my Facebook friends. Um, and and I, <laughs> two things struck me as interesting. One is I stumbled onto an article. I, I don't care about the substance of the article. It's the title that fascinated me. It said, Reimagining the Way Humans, Machines, and Data Interact. You know, the fact that you even put sort of humans and data in that way together just, just jarred me. And, and the point taken. And then as I continued to research some of this stuff, I went to somewhere else and I posed some question. I can't think of what it was. And I got a little message that says, just say when you're ready for AI to generate an answer for you. And I thought, yeah, that fits because I've already had students handing in assignments that were not their own, but AI generated. And uh, there we are. So we're in, we're in that, in that, in that uh, phase. Um, here's an interesting little, little, just a measurement point. So, and I, yes, I'm going to date myself, I know. Um, I graduated uh, university in 1978. The speaker at my school, I was up at Syracuse University, which has a major journalism school. And that was actually my major was magazine journalism. And uh, the, the journalist William Sapphire was speaking. Now, he'd been a speechwriter for Nixon back in the 60s. Interesting fellow, but interesting writer, interesting fellow. And he gave a number at, my, at his graduation speech, which, which really haunted me, because it was shocking enough back then. I think it's done nothing but change more since then. He said at that time, in 19, you know, mid, mid to late 1970s, of all of U.S. mail, he said, now, just for those of you who are young, mail means little pieces of paper folded up and put in envelopes with a stamp on the front. That's mail, just so you know, okay? Not this electronic-y stuff that we do every day. Anyway, 3% of mail was personal. The rest was business and bills. Only 3%. And what he was getting at was you could already see, and I'm going back you know, quite some years, uh, you could already see a change in the way people were relating. And his suggestion was we were losing, even back then, uh, some of the quality of relationships. Uh, now, there's many other ways to relate, of course, but, but uh, just th that, that's what he was observing all that long, long ago. And as I thought about this, this topic that I was asked by multiple people to address, you know, what, what makes for good fellowship? What makes for good fellowship? There's lots of things I could say. I want you to know I'm focusing tonight on just one. I know it's only one out of a bigger picture. I know that, but just, just one piece. And it's going to be this, and I call it a thesis or a theme or whatever you want. Good fellowship requires good friendship. That's the focus. I'd like just for a couple minutes with you. Good Fellowship is best and strongest and most enduring when it goes with good friendship, okay? I'd like to just, just muse on that a little bit with you this evening. And by the way, I, I feel this is a great place to do it. I, I, one of the things I do after any worship service I'm at, I just look at the quality of what kind of interaction is going on after 
church. You know, during church, you're sort of led through something, but after church is all voluntary, right? So you sit there and you start talking with people or you're playing with the kids or you're, you know, whatever you're doing. That's reflective of the kinds of bonds that are there. It was a nice thing to see this morning. Anyway, a couple thoughts on good fellowship and good friendship. Two things. Let's talk first about good friends. I uh, stumbled onto a lovely statement from C.S. Lewis. Okay, uh, happens to be, by the way, in his book, The Four Loves. And I'm going to read to you uh, just a short, short paragraph, so work with me. I'll say it slowly because there's, I know there's a fair bit here that I thought was really a beautiful statement. He said this. He says, in friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years' difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between houses, choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. Uh, he's starting to sound like an RP, isn't he? Okay, moving on. Anyway, Lewis says, A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you, uh, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, You have not chosen one another, but I've chosen you for one another. And he goes on to say, the friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out, but it's the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. And you know, a, a good part of, of friendship is allowing that bond that providence brings about to really take root, you know. Uh, it, it's, it, it allows sort of these human and divine purposes to sort of swing together and coalesce and, and join streams, um, sometimes in some really delightful ways and uh, require us to be able to appreciate sometimes, even sometimes the difficult differences that may, may exist between us. You know, friendships often develop over common interest, you know, you have something that you're doing and somebody else is doing it and the friendship comes out of that, common activities. But there's also these kind of surprises. Do you know these surprises where you end up being good friends with someone and you realize we're really different? Like, how did we ever get to be friends? You know, that expression, opposites attract, it can apply to friendships as much as to marriages, you know, and so forth. And, and sometimes that's the way it is. And it seems to me a good friendship is grounded in a hunger that says, I want to know more about that other person just because I want to know more. Not because I have to, not because I'm being forced to, but I'm just curious. What, what makes them the way they are? I uh, interestingly read, uh, 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 well, I, I glanced at a, 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 well, no, I read an article on, on friendship. By the way, it was a totally secular article. I want to, to hear what people are saying about good friendships. And you know what was interesting in this article? Um, it, it said good friends are, I'm going to mention just a couple of the, it had quite a long list, by the way. Good friends are people that are trustworthy, that are honest, that are dependable, that are loyal. Uh, they are able to trust others and others can trust 
them. They have a certain empathy for other people, even when we're very different. By the way, you know the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? Sympathy means I have a common burden with you. Empathy means I don't share your burden directly. I don't have that, that which is weighing you down, but I still humanly feel for you. And that's a possibility. Um, they're good listeners and so forth. I had a bunch of other things to say. And I thought, wait a minute, that's Bible stuff. That's Bible stuff. Not everything in, the, in this particular article's list was what I would call Bible stuff, but the majority of it was, I can find Bible verses that encourage these, whether it's the Proverbs or examples. One classic example, of course, is David and Jonathan, right? They, they show these kinds of things. And uh, I thought, may we, may, may we be like that? Bible has various metaphors that really get at the way a good friendship goes, right? You know some of these things. Uh, iron, you know all these things. Uh, iron that sharpens iron, right? That brings, brings out the best and the cutting edge of some other piece of iron. Um, as the Proverbs put it, there's a friend that loves at all times, even the difficult ones when maybe you aren't that lovable. <laughs> and we all have those times, right, I think. Uh, there's that, that friend that sticks closer than a brother. You know, the, the David and Jonathan stuff where things are very, very difficult, but um, we're going to make something good out of it together. That, that, that's good friendship. I could say lots more, but, but that's where we are. Now, here's the funny thing, in a good way. It's a funny thing. You realize that Jesus is often described as a friend, either by the description or by the actual word itself, right? So in, in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, he's a friend to undesirable people. The people where the local community is saying, I'll avoid that person. I, don't even, I won't even look their way. I'm going to pretend they're not really there, even though I catch them out of the side of my eye. Those are the kind of people he was a friend of, okay? Or Jesus saying to his, his inner circle in John 15, you're my friends. I call you my friends. That's interesting. How about this one? Abraham, according to James 2, a friend of God. That's, that's lovely. By, by the way, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a co-editor of a particular book series with a guy named Jesus Pelaez. So I tell people, I publish with Jesus. It, it, it makes an impression. <laughs> but it's not what's intended here. I do publish with Jesus, but uh, not in the way it's intended. Anyway, uh, these people are friends of God. And we all instinctively know what it is to be a good friend. My suggestion is people who can be good friends are great material for building good fellowship. Now, that's just part of it. Let me just add one more angle, just one. Um, fellowship has, of course, a focus. We, we all agree on this, right? Uh, I, I think of the, you ever seen the image of the, the Greco-Roman god Janus, J-A-N-U-S, Janus? He's a two-faced god. He looks two different directions at the same time, okay? I'm going to use the image positively here. Uh, fellowship is a, is a two-faced thing, meaning god word as well as people Word, primarily Godward, but not without a view to the people that we are fellowshipping with at the same time. And, and it seems to me, if you think about it, 
The, the Ten Commandments actually give us a similar message, right? What do the first four commandments uh, draw our attention to? And I think you know the answer, how uh, I relate to God. What do the next half dozen, for the most part, talk about? And you know the answer, it's how I relate to my neighbor, right? Uh, my friendship this way and my friendship this way. Um, and when Jesus is asked, you know, what's the most important one, he mentions the most important one is how I relate to God. But he says, and the second is like it, right? It's how we relate to each other. So it just seems to me good fellowship and, and, and worship and any other thing we do for fellowship definitely comes out of people with an eye in both directions like Janus. Um, how can someone say, he really loves God. This is what the Bible tells us. How can someone say he really loves God if he's not really finding ways to love his fellow human being? Because the two go hand in hand. It's not one at the cost of the other. They, they both fit together. So when Jesus tells the, uh, uh, the Samaritan woman, for example, God's looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth, there's multiple things going on with that. Okay? Let's bring in here Psalm 133. Okay, uh, Psalm 133 has two interesting little images. Uh, you know, the, the, the fellowship of brothers, we'll say brothers and sisters, uh, in unity. Uh, the first metaphor is anointing of, uh, in this case, the priest Aaron, but it could have been maybe any of the other priests or a king or something. And you've got an anointing oil. The oil is, a, is probably an olive, olive oil base with various spices. And when the priest is being set apart for service, the oil is poured on the head, and you pour enough liquid on one's head, and you know it's going to drip down, right? And the guy has a beard, and so it drips down on the beard, and then if you saturate the beard, it then drips down on the clothing, right? I mean, we can understand this, right? So what does that have to do with fellowship? Well, you've got something that is joining different things together. This gets joined to this, gets joined to this, gets joined to wherever else it goes. Uh, the oil joins together different things. And the other metaphor is rather similar, okay? It's like the dew on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is, a, is, is, is the tallest mountain in, in uh, Jewish Palestine. Uh, it's up north. It's up in, up, way up north in Galilee. It is so high that even into the summer sometimes it has snow-capped peak on it, Okay. And then what happens is eventually the, the, the snow melts, runs down, goes into various water feeders that go into Lake Galley, then through the rest of the Jordan River down to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is just 20 miles away from Jerusalem. Okay? So you have Mount Hermon way up north, Jerusalem further down south, very, very di distinct locations, both prominences, but distinct locations. All right? And how are they getting, so to speak, joined together? It's by the waters that flow from the one and help to bring fresh water to people in the other. That's the joining. So, and isn't it interesting, oil and water, you realize, are images of what? They're both images in different places of the work of God's Spirit. The anointing oil is the anointing of God's Spirit. The washing with water is the work of God's Spirit. So it's God's Spirit bringing people together. It's fairly easy to be apart from people, but it in, takes intentional things to be genuinely together in heart and soul and mind. 
And a lot of ways to do that. Worship is one of the most basic ones. Worship has us, and fellowship has us, looking outside of ourselves and uh, imagining the excellence of God. Now, we could be thinking about that for the rest of our lives. And then we do it with friends where, ideally, we're taking time to get to know them. And what makes them, in C.S. Lewis's words, so beautiful. It does both at the same time. Uh, it's, good, it's good to see the things that are excellent. By the way, just a few weeks ago, I was with Geneva students in various parts of, uh, of Italy, and one of the places we looked at was Michelangelo's uh, marble carving called the Pieta, Mary holding a, a, a deceased Jesus after the crucifixion. And the, the thing is, it's, it's all stone, but it, the, 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 the finesse is just absolutely astonishing. And then you realize Michelangelo was only 23, 23 when he made that. And if you don't come away feeling kind of worthless after that, I don't know, I don't know what makes you feel worthless. But, but, but you, you just sit there and you marvel at, at the excellence of just a, just a piece of stone. That, that's awe-inspiring. How much more? How much more knowing living people and knowing the God that created all of us? These, these, are, these are enlivening things, because in knowing people, we're knowing the image of God. The two go together. So worship can be private, it can be public. Of course, there's a place for all of that, but some of it ought to be, in time fellowship, ought to be with the people of God. It's just a great way to go. We're seeing in our society today a lot of weaknesses exposed in terms of how people relate to each other. By the way, I work heavily with young adults, typically the 18 to 22, 23 crowd. I can tell you loads of wonderful things about young adults. I really can't, truly, I can't. I will say, however, we're seeing a lot of delayed emotional maturity, okay? The changes in our society of various kinds are, are changing. Uh, how fast people do or don't mature, and that affects how they relate to others. Uh, these things are being exposed. What does Hebrews 10, I didn't forget the other passage, but I'm going to bring that in to seal this all up, okay? What does Hebrews 10 say about uh, you know, being together? Well, written to people at a time when the Roman armies are ravaging the, promise, the so-called promised land, and it says as a result of, you know, what's going on, some people are sort of staying apart from others. And we get that sometimes when horrible things happen, people just, you know, shy away from being with others. But he says, let's not do that, even when some of the pressures of the, uh, the day and of the moment, and I would say the pressures of technology, which connects us and divides us at the same time. It does both. Um, let's, let's find a way to either steer those things in a good direction or push back where needed and take to heart this bit. Don't, don't, don't forget to be together. Be together. Encourage, instruct. Just when you're face-to-face -face with someone, there are ways to genuinely build that person up and let them build you up. It's just a basic good thing to have and to take our times together, enjoy them together, and honor God together. It's... it's, it's it's a healthy thing to do. Father, may we do that uh, with energy and with compassion. And as people who have known your love and compassion, may we be that way to others. When those who we love are sometimes maybe at a distance from uh, a good fellowship, maybe 
we can help and encourage them, not, to, not by trying to pressure or make them feel guilty or something, but just show them there's a, there's a great way to go in the fellowship of friends, in the spirit of God. Uh, would you grow us in that, and would you help us to help others towards the same? We pray in Jesus' name.